0: Welcome to Pivot Points. This is the podcast about the pivotal moments that have shaped our academic, professional and personal lives. I'm Femke, your head of communications at Wolfson College, and I'm all about creating ways for you to share your stories like this podcast. For this month's episode of Pivot Points, I spoke to geophysics professor Tarja Nissen-Mayer, who studies seismology, and he gives us a really insightful snapshot of what it's like to juggle a busy academic career alongside family life when you're deeply passionate about both.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I guess I can reveal I have a very specific family situation in that the children live um, an ocean away, mm. and it requires me, you know, a lot of... It takes out of a lot of logistical efforts and energy and time and money mm-hmm. to to actually just see them. And these times are really important to me. So the kind of balance is is a bit off because it's it's sort of either full on or full off, meaning I'm here doing academia mm-hmm. or the kids are here or not, mm. I'm there, and then, and then it's sort of full on with, with family life. Mm. And it's sort of basically full on energy all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... It's, it's not, uh, balance is a strange word. So it's, it's sort of balance on a long time scale, but mm-hmm. not, not on a daily time scale. Because
0: yeah.
1: I have these periods where it's basically full on work and then periods where it's full on family. And, yeah. and getting that right is, is difficult. And I'm still mm. you know, working through that basically. Yeah, yeah,
0: imagine. And how old are they now?
1: They're teenagers. Yeah. Teenagers 16 now. 16, 13.
0: Yeah. Okay. So your pivot point was around the moment they were born. Yes. So what was what was going on in your life at the time? When did that happen?
1: I was, so when the older one was born, I was a PhD student, hmm. uh, so midway through in the States, which are longer PhDs, and I was um, two years away from graduation. Um, it was a very intense moment. I was, again, an ocean away from my parents, um, thousands of miles and kilometers away from the in-laws, and also uh, my, my PhD supervisor went through um, basically terminal cancer. Mm. He died a year later, but, but at that stage when my son was born, he was already diagnosed with basically having no chance of survival. So I was sort of simultaneously looking into, you know, the situation with my PhD supervisor, who I really appreciated and cherished every single moment with, and seeing life, sort of you know, death and life, sort of, the same time scale and but but sort of back to to the birth of the children, it's just it's something that that you always have in, in mind before it happens, and 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 you, you think you can prepare yourself. So we went to these sort of parental classes, and mm. of course nothing of that matters once it happens, and and um, it's just this incredible sort of just emergence of a new dimension in your life, and it's I don't know I mean everyone has connections to other people before then. And this could be love, could be siblings, could be um, fractures, relationships, could be friendships, very, very deep, shallow, anything. Um, but that connection, I find, is such a different level. I mean, it's a really different dimension because it comes with this, you know, deep responsibility for that person's well-being all around. And mm. and I think merge that with that fragility of a baby and so on, it's, it's, just, it's just so touching on all levels. and. Mm. And I think it sort of it sort of condenses the whole point of being alive. I mean, if if you go with Darwin, just saying with science, mm-hmm. um, that's what life is all about reproduction. That's yeah. that's all there is basically, and and every other species would agree basically, mm. and and so in the end, I think that very moment when it happens is is just where you really sort of the the rest of the planet sort of falls out, it f- falls away, and it, it sort of really. Brings to light what, what life is all about.
0: Mm. And what did yeah. that do to your relationship with your work? Because I think academic work specifically can be very complex and kind of the yeah. opposite from that, and you can get yeah. very kind of tangential about things.
1: Yeah. So when that happened, um, that, you know, we were looking at. Um, pregnancy and then mm. having a child, at the time when I was doing a PhD, obviously the question came up, is it a good time or a bad time? Mm-hmm. And Within <laughs> academia, there's never a good or a bad time. So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that, you know, being a bad decision or a good decision. It's mm. just whenever it happens, it happens. And I think it's great. Mm-hmm. And the only important thing is that one must free time. Mm. It's, it, it, I'm not even, this is not even the right thing to say. It's not free in time. I mean, time ought to be. There for family in the first place, I think. And and work is basically to facilitate uh family life in a way. I mean, w- mm. why do we work? We work to have shelter, to mm. have a purpose, to to feed ourselves and to feed our families. But but that is the purpose. Mm. And you know you can you can be incredibly passionate and, and 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 in love with your work and that's great. And I think I think everyone should think about finding <laughs> finding a profession of that kind. But in the end it's it's for the provision of the basics of yeah. life and, and and I think when, when birth happens, that has to be a focus point where, mm. where you really say, like, you know, I'm, th- this, this is what it all comes down to. Mm. And, you know, that being in the middle of a PhD, so, I mean, I guess like everything in life, it had positive and negative connotations. The positive was actually a lot of flexibility. So having a, a very general supervisor mm. um, meant that, that he said, you know, whenever the child is sick, just take your time off and, you know, come in and leave whenever you want, whatever suits this family situation. Mm. Um, it didn't take the pressure for me away to to finish this phd mm. and I did finish it in the same time scale but I find it also has this maybe it's this adrenaline um, um, focus that a lot of people talk about when you have children that you just focus in a different way mm. and I think it gave me a lot of sort of you know energy to focus and like like it's even more important to finish that because yes. I need to have this you know work on the responsibility and, and uh, yeah. carry on
0: yeah that's interesting and as they've got, Older and their, you know, their personalities have evolved and their role in your life has changed as well. Like how, how has that felt? How has that changed? And I guess like what, what more have you learned from them as they've aged?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I find one of the one of the most amazing things is the sort of sweet innocence of young children. Mm. They're they're just not, you know, subjected to things yet at some stage, and and and, you know, it comes with a lot of, you know potential influence towards them but it also brings out the very basics of life so they, they come up with this you know pragmatism and 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 just total freedom in how mm. they think and act mm. and look at people and and just question things And ask
0: questions yeah, yeah exactly
1: and i mean i find that literally intellectually some of the most stimulating uh, moments of life i've ever had is mm. <laughs> sort of answering you know how do you, how do you actually properly answer some of these questions or threads of questions, and what are, are what
0: are some of the best questions they've asked
1: you? Well, I mean, the simple ones are just why, 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 and continue yeah. to ask why, yeah, yeah. and, and <laughs> whichever direction, yeah, whichever direction <laughs> goes, I've, I was always at my limits, and yeah. way more than any student questions or colleagues mm. questions I've ever had. Yeah, um, yeah, which is fantastic. amazing. And then, and then, once they grow older, of course, they sort of been subjected to more and more constraints from society, mm. and and you know all the good and the bad of society, and, mm. and a lot of bad actually, I think, mm. and and. um and it, it sort of, of course, changes their ranges of influence and their radius of life. It sort of grows beyond, you know, my confines. And mm. and I don't think that's negative. It's kind of beautiful, too, seeing them grow inside this dynamic between mm. everything they face in life. Um, I guess every parent has a sense of, you know, letting go is is, is difficult. Mm. Um, in my specific situation, I sort of, you know, have been forced into the situation where I had to sort of, temporarily let go every so often and mm. and so I hope I might be growing into that in a different way that makes mm. it probably a bit easier mm. um, but you know so far even being teenagers it, it's, it's, it brings it brings out a new component um, of them basically thinking well parents are not the end and be all in your life and they might want to have moments alone Very true. and um, the thing is I when I was a teenager I was I was adamant about thinking well whatever I'm going through I want my parents to, I, I want myself as a parent to go through it mm-hmm. I mean I want my Myself as a parent to to realize what I've been like as a teenager. Yeah. So I, I'm well, trying to recall that to myself all the time.
0: Well, go, going back to that then, so you as a as a teenager, mm. um, your second pivot point was around attending a concert by the Popes. Was that yes. when you were a teenager? Yes. Yeah. Right in the middle. Ta- talk me through that. That sounds like yes. a very important. Part. It
1: was actually the the very night before my sweet sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a time when I went, when music was basically everything for me, and yeah. uh, way above school too. Um, It was sort of music in a sense. I I played actively in a band and we Mm. wrote music, we wrote lyrics, and and we took that very seriously. Mm. And um, that concert was basically, I didn't know that much about the music, actually. Mm. But I went there with a friend from my class or two friends, and then they brought their sort of old childhood friends. And that was a web of six, seven, eight of us who most of us met for the first time. All of the group, and and we're still the best friends to this day, and this is you know thirty odd years ago, mm. so we see each other all the time. I saw so all of them, each single one of them this summer actually, mm-hmm. and and it's a fantastic bond, and that was created that very night, yeah, and that bond also triggered um, an incredible passion for Ireland, and through that music, Pogues being sort of Irish yeah. folk. And on speed basically and, and so we travelled to Ireland after that many many times mm. and, and there was you know it's formative years in your late teenage years when mm. you first go on your trips you explore places um, you, you're experiencing just a different environment different cultures mm. it's really formative and, and to me what it really distilled was the uh, combination of these wild windswept rough landscapes absolutely stunning in the west of Ireland and combined with this incredible kindness and generosity of the people. So this was in the in the nineties when Ireland wasn't doing that well. Mm. And and you could see poverty in a lot of places. And we went there as kind of rich kids from you know continental Europe and not rich, I by all means didn't grow up rich, but but in a in a comparative on a comparative level, yes. And and mm. so we went there and we were just we were just blown away by the generosity of the people mm. and how you know, maybe their their sort of realization that that life is is about very essential things, mm. and, and how that didn't take anything away for their happiness, mm. and, and nor generosity towards us as as know visitors, yeah, um, that were allegedly from a much better place in quotation marks, yeah, um, and that yeah combined with the sort of you know role music plays and singing together and doing music as a community in pubs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it just never left me that, hmm. that whole that whole combination of kindness between you know in in the midst of things this the sort of you know space and landscapes mm. and in, and then the connectivity of communities and music
0: well something. on the on the landscapes, I think mm. something that struck me in your description of, of this pivot point was how you seem very drawn to the landscape from both a kind of scientific point of view and an artistic point of view and that makes me think that you have this deep drive to just understand the world around you and any discipline that enables you to do that Mm. so I'm also curious about how your academic work helps you understand your personal life and your own connection Mm. to the world
1: yeah great great question so um in, in the school system I was in, in Germany, we had to choose two main subjects for the last two years, sort of A-level equivalent, and they were freely chosen. So I chose physics and fine arts, and to me that was just natural because those were the two subjects that I found most interesting and the ones where I thought I, I can do well in. And turned out that for many years beforehand and afterwards, hundreds of pupils have never chosen that combination. And so I talked to my art teacher, my physics teacher, and, and they also said, like, you know, it's not not necessarily a contradiction, but it's just really rare. And only then I realized that it's seemingly uncommon. But to me, they were kind of very similar. Mm. That and even even writing lyrics in music. Because in the end, I thought it was just a way of, of, you know, describing the outside world in a way. I mean, I am a scientist through and through. And I think we have obviously a, a case for robust evidence and <laughs> Repeatable experiments and so on in doing science and describing the world, and hence we have technology. and And I think you know this is the factual basis by which we should do decision making in society, mm-hmm. including climate change. But um, when it comes for the personal level to describe the world around you, I don't think that should stand out. I think I think the way of you know coming up with a visual rendition of the world around you, or musical or poetic, mm-hmm. is all the same in, the, mm-hmm. in, in some deeper sense, yeah. religious as well, which. I'm not really part of, but but I think I have the same respect for that. It's just making sense of things, yeah. And and with whatever sort of toolbox you use, whether it's mathematical or, or, or sort of a, a paintbrush, you know, it's 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 just sort of trying to make sense between where you stand with your emotions and your understanding and your, your sort of your know, rational and emotional yeah. self and what what you absorb from the outside with yeah. all the different senses, yeah. And yeah, so I think that that sort of in Ireland, that really, really caught me in, in the, the sort of intensity of that landscape It's just just very deep. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned also that that experience kind of prompted this idea that you could move to the UK or to Britain <laughs> and feel at home. Yeah. Do, do you feel at home here?
1: Yeah. I mean, so home is a very interesting concept. I yes. lived in um, so my, my family's very international to start with. My parents are German and Norwegian and they met in California and settled in Germany, so I grew up there. But mm-hmm. then um, my children also have Canadian background and Cypriotic and Slovak. And <laughs> and, um, and I've lived in five countries mm-hmm. uh, since. So I, I felt like um, home is, is not singular. It, it, you can have homes. And, mm-hmm. and I felt every place that I've moved to and also where I have family relations, like Norway, mm-hmm. um, are all partial homes. They're sort of a mosaic of the whole and a piece of the mosaic. And, and basically... Um, wherever I've gone, I've sort of experienced things I like and dislike in ways that I hadn't seen beforehand. So yeah. I, each place I've moved to has sort of taught me about myself what I actually like. Mm. So sort of each step has really distilled what I actually am really looking for. And mm. having moved to the UK nine years ago, I, I guess I knew more already than any of the previous moves. And also, I guess you move at a certain point in your life, and you, you look for different things, different mm. aspects of life, and. And yes, I certainly flew home, absolutely. And, and I felt home very quickly here, I think. Um, and partly because of this realization of, of, you know, having seen Irish lifestyles. I don't want to conflate Ireland with England. There is mm-hmm. a distinct <laughs> difference. <would> <laughs> but, I mean, there is some aspect of similarities with, yeah, you know, between the, the weather and geography and language and, mm-hmm. and um, pop and, and music and so on. Yeah. So all of that, I think, uh, yeah, I felt immediately being part of
0: it yeah and how does that varied sense of home work with academic careers for you because in academia you you frequently have to move mm. somewhere new for the sake mm. of an interesting job that comes up maybe for a short length of mm. time
1: so for me all these these moves geographic moves they they're basically part of me in a way yeah. um and and i've i think even in my high school journal we were asked about what's, what's your next step and i put put that Following phrase into it and said studying abroad or something. Mm. So I always had this this pull to, to go places and yeah. that served me well. But it doesn't serve everyone. First of all, obviously, nor necessarily a settled down life with with family and mm. and I wouldn't you know want to put any cause link between the family decision and or not. But 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 it, it it can make things very difficult and mm. and I think it's it's not a good thing that that you're forced to move. Yeah, I think. I think academia should allow um, p- career paths
0: mm.
1: in, in a much, much closer environment. I mean, not the least because of climate issues. Mm. It's, I think it's we really have to look at ourselves for moving and flying too much. It's, it's not a good thing. And I, I'm as guilty as, as many, I think, of having, you know, having had a carbon footprint that is way above mm. even contemporaries in our own countries. Mm.
0: Well, for both of those reasons, and for family reasons mm. and climate reasons, has, was there ever a point where you considered not having an academic career? Uh,
1: yes, yes. Uh, so it, it sort of touches upon the third pivot point, actually. Mm. Um, I, so my job as a geophysicist is um, very closely related, actually, to oil exploration. No, sorry, I shouldn't say my job. Geophysics as a discipline is a core discipline that is used in the oil exploration. So as a consequence, meaning that hydrocarbon exploration is is an absolute gigantic market, financially speaking, and everything else, um, they offer a huge amount of jobs. And it just so happens that a lot of geophysicists go into that industry. And and they're kind of of visible when when you study that subject. I was completely unaware of that when I went into it. So I studied physics at first, coming from my high school interests. Um, only because I figured there's probably an easier way to a job than doing fine arts. And I said, I'll mm. keep fine arts as a hobby. Mm. Um, but going from physics, I, I felt physics was too detached from the planet. So I thought, what could I do instead to be closer, you know, studying something closer to the planet? And then I, I found something called geophysics. And I thought, that that's cool. It's sort of the same mindset, but applied to the earth. Mm. Um, and only then I found out that a lot of it was, was about extractive industries, which is not my thing. And... Mm. Um, but anyway, so as so I was kind of exposed to that to that industry and, and they offered me jobs as well. And and the thing is it's actually scientifically extremely interesting what they're doing. And and there are a lot of very good people, even morally good people. And and so I think total condemnation is the wrong thing too. I think we must stop as fast as we can to exploit any fossil fuels. But condemning person people individually is not, it's not my thing. Hmm. And I understand so many life trajectories because of these things. Like you, you have to feed a family, you have to be in some place and and you look at your skill set, you look at the offers you have, and, and it's just a very complex balance of things, and and so I wouldn't want, want to blame anyone individually, but um, so yeah, I've, I've had this this thought many times that the the sort of excesses of academia are extreme, where where you really you are know, basically in it all the time, you you cannot really leave it. I mean, you go on holidays, you could turn off your inbox and so on, but but in the end, you, your mind never shuts off, and mm. and it's just because the, the job is all encompassing, you're sort of passionate about yourself. And it's so multifaceted. So so you, you just, you have a responsibility for running a group, which is, I find yeah. it almost like a family, like children. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, PhD students <laughs> aren't children, but it's it, I think it's a similar responsibility. It's yes. responsible for someone's professional career, in, yeah. in a sense. And, and it comes with, with uh, you know, with, with personal um, and pastoral care as well, of course. Mm-hmm. And... and um, that is one thing and then and then to just make sure that the ship is running and then and then you're constantly being judged. And and I think that that is something that I've really I over the years I, I find more and more annoying to deal with. Mm. I have to basically worry less and less about it because my career is, you know, I'm, I'm in, a, in a stable job, unlike many others, so I'm very grateful for mm. that. But the fact that one is constantly judging peers is something mm. that I've realized is detrimental not only to workplaces, but also to scientific progress, I think.
0: Do you see that in uh, younger academics? So those who you were supervising, maybe. Do you see that kind of judgment between peers?
1: Um, I think so, but I wouldn't want to blame them. It's, mm. it's basically the pressure of the system mm. that suggests only by moving ahead, by being faster and better and higher and, you know, yeah. all of it, High you will you will be able to find any job yeah. in that realm. and And... I think it doesn't bring out the best in us. Yeah. That's one thing. I think it's morally not, not good, but it, it, it also just doesn't bring the best out in science. Um, mm. I think the best of science is when people have time, trust, and space to collaborate. Mm. And, and I think collaboration is totally underappreciated in how we value and judge science. Mm. So when, whenever we value something, uh, judge something in research proposals, handing uh, out jobs for example, it's always based on individuals so that all these indices that we judge by they're, they're based on on pillars sort of sort of monolithic um, achievements so mm-hmm. sort of individual prizes, individual grants and so on and it's it's much rarer to, that someone says okay, what's great is that network of collaborations and people you've you've sort of brought in or, or sort of you know supported as part of the network, not, not necessarily the head of the network and, and I think that that is how the best science moves ahead is if, if you manage to to talk across many different disciplines in a language that's that's um, applicable to all, mm. and and that is not really valued that much in science. So I think I think there's, yeah, I have I have a lot of <laughs> beef basically with judgment because mm. I think I think it's being thrown around all the time and it's it's sort of counter to what scientific um, method should be all it? about. It's yes, nice. it's very subjective. Mm. I mean, it's it's impossible to do judgment objectively mm-hmm. by definition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and I think we should basically retract from it as much as we can. I mean, of course, we have to. If we have more applicants for one job than jobs, then we need to make a decision. But yeah. but we should do just as little as, as,
0: as possible. Mm. Yeah. Well, just going back to that point, then, when, when you decided to go into academia. Yeah. So that stemmed from uh, a lecture that you attended and some advice that you were given by the lecturer. Can you yeah. talk me through that moment?
1: Yeah. So, I mean staying in academia ended up being basically saying okay if i get a job offer a permanent one in a place that is good for the whole connection between family and family and everyone's well-being and and, you know access to things then yes Mm -hmm. and that happened basically and then so so we did it basically um but but like i said i could have could have had sort of a, a backdoor um anytime and i i think I think what isn't helpful either is is to sort of pretend that anyone who doesn't continue on an academic path is somewhat a failure in quotation marks mm. and that's that's a very common sort of undercurrent I think when people talk about this. Mm. Um when I want to look at my PhD graduates and my I shouldn't say my the people I, I had the pleasure to collaborate with is really the only way to put it. Mm. Um there was absolutely no correlation with how good they are, how driven, how 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 perfectionist, how anything, and where they ended up. Mm.
0: Mm, you know,
1: the, the the path, whether they go into industry or or governance or or charities or academia, they're down to so many parameters and mm. and, and some of them just feel like, yeah, they have these options available, so they go for it there's no there's no correlation between any of that mm. so i think I think um that's another judgment that we should pull out from is is to say only academia is sort of you know you're, you're sort of intellectual you mm. it's nonsense, i think especially in my technical fields, some of the companies pull the best people automatically, especially yeah. machine learning and, and so
0: on. Well, that but yeah that that relates to to another question I wanted to ask because. Mm in academia sometimes things can move very very slowly yeah. and in industry things can move mm. quite quickly mm. so what role do you feel academia plays in actually solving real world issues and making mm. things happen and where do you yeah. feel you sit with that yeah
1: so I'll go back to the pivot point you asked about mm. and I never answered so right I was talking about um, in my PhD times so I, I forget when exactly it was I could probably look it up, but I had the pleasure to attend a lecture uh, by uh, Jeffrey Sachs, really well-known economist, I guess he's economist by training, um, mm. at that time he worked a lot on health, he also worked with Russia and Soviet Union at the time, but also about climate change, and, and he just gave this amazing lecture on, you know, the, the problems of balance of power between the global north and the US and Europe versus Africa and, and the Far East Asia and so on. And how that relates to health problems, geographic disparities, and climate change, as far as I remember. But after his talk was a reception that I went to, and I had the pleasure to, to just stand in front of him. So I just asked, this, asked him this question, because I was in the middle of my PhD, maybe sort of a mid-PhD crisis. I think like every single PhD student has it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that is like, what am I doing with my life? Is this mm-hmm. worth it? And, and where am I going with it? And, and so I was in the midst of you know, being, being sort of confronted with, with oil industries as a place of doing something that I don't agree with morally um, in places that I'm not considering my most desirable places to live this was Houston, Texas for the most part and but also doing incredibly interesting scientifically interesting work with amazing resources, very good people Um, and so what I asked him was, obviously he was very passionate about doing something good to the planet um, and climate change and so on Um, I should say I I don't agree with all of his views that I've I've heard more recently but um, so I asked him if I want to contribute something positive to the planet, especially in the context of climate change, with my current background in geophysics, which means sort of physics related to any earth problem. Um, what would you advise as a career path? Going to the oil industry and trying to change from within, sort of pushing, moving your way up, pushing the industry towards um, sustainable, um, green energies, um, or going into governance and decision making, or media, maybe, um, or activism. <laughs> Or Academia, and he immediately said, No, oh, he did. He, I think he, he hesitated for one moment. He said, Interesting question, and he said, Academia. Mm.
0: <laughs>
1: and I was a bit surprised by that because um, I, at that time, I thought, Yeah, academia is exactly what you said the mm. slow moving thing. Uh, sort of people just sort of retract to an ivory tower, and you, you don't really know what it's there for and whether it can ever, any of these things can be translated into actual action. Yeah. He said, um, um, it's what we need in this debate are independent voices that are based on evidence and th- those need to be loud and clear so he he made the case it doesn't help if you retract to you know an ivory tower be in an ivory tower but then make your voices clear be a yeah. science communicator um, but he also said um, that what we need is is complex thinking long-term thinking and also education basically as you know the next generation comes into this pl- planet that we've we've um, you know, Managed to almost destroy, um, to make sure that that generation, um, you know, is is on the quotation mark right track. Mm. So I, here's one quote actually from um, the, around that time too. I had to um, be a lab assistant in, in in undergraduate classes. This was in in the states in Princeton, and it was called uh, volcanoes, earthquakes, and natural hazards. I think the class, and we had to make sort of student uh, you know, case studies for the question what to do when a hurricane hits New York City or when a volcano erupts near Seattle and things like that. And so I was just a lab assistant as a PhD student. And at the end of the class, so this was what they called rocks for jocks. So the American <laughs> uh, university system works very differently from the UK, where every student has to take classes from, from I think, ethics and philosophy or science. So they called this class in the earth sciences department um, as the one that was taken by people from history and English literature and philosophy and so on. So hundreds of students and they all came from non-science backgrounds. So after this, this lab assistantship I, um, I was approached by a student who seemed very interested in the subject but I think wasn't really really keen on the scientific context of, of it. But he said thank you very much for this class. And now he believes that science is really important in decision-making, and when he becomes the president of America, he'll, he'll remember that science is really important in decision-making. <laughs> so his clear goal was to become the president of the United States, and that he'll re- remember um, evidence-based decision-making. Ooh. So obviously, as we've seen in the last 10 years, that hasn't happened in all cases yes. just yet. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, think, I think the value of education is not to be undermined. And, mm. and maybe universities is not the, the right level, maybe primary and secondary is more important. Mm. I, I don't know. But but I think education is incredibly important. Yeah. An educated population gets stuff done, I think.
0: Mm. And yeah. what what advice would you give to a younger academic coming to you with the same question now? Of which direction to go?
1: Yeah, I would, I would maybe try to be very careful with any advice because in the end, um, people have to balance their own, it's such a, it's such a multifaceted decision to, to, to go into any job. Um, I think people have to feel good about what they want to do and and it has to really satisfy this you know entire family environment. So I think I think I mean it depends on what options you have on the table but but if you say blank sheet let me go for something first thing is consider who are the people that are important around you. Mm-hmm. Is it could be family, you know, parents to take care of, could be children, could be partner, um, friends. All of these things sooner or later matter a lot I think and and if you, if you just Go completely away from everyone that's and of, you know, don't really consider what, what is important to them. That's not good. Mm. Um, in terms of a light uh, work life balance, like I said, academia is is it's a difficult beast to, to tackle. It's it also comes with a lot of flexibility. So so in my current situation, I also appreciate the fact that it's it's the, the organization of time is quite flexible. So so you know one one can one can say well I, I define when I work exactly. Like I said, work is always with you in some way, but but it, it makes time organization quite flexible as well. Mm. Um, it allows you a considerable amount of freedom um, with security once you have a permanent job. So mm. the, the sad um, fact of academia is that when life is incredibly intense, and that is when people are sort of in their 30s, 20s and 30s, when they're trying to find themselves, trying to find long-term partners and children and so on, that's when there's the most insecurity in the, in the job market. And that's really unfortunate. Mm. Um, so I think I think it's, I, I would not want to give a very strong advice towards any direction because it really depends on the individual circumstances. Mm. Um, but when it comes to making direct change, I, I, I think I would now disagree with Jeffrey Sachs, maybe. Maybe 15 years later, we realize that um, I think the climate problem is, is mostly a communication problem these days. So it's the onus is also on, on on academics to speak up a lot more, but I think in the end the broad masses are not, not going to be approached by science communication. Mm. I think media, mass media is is, is a really big problem in, in communicating that that the, the sort of the reality of the crisis, mm. and I think only then would the public be made aware in a way together with education actually, and then putting up pressure on policymaking. Mm. So I think policymaking seems to be only reactive in a sense that. Only do stuff if lobbyists talk to them or p- population puts pressure.
0: Yeah, and that's very much in line with George Monbiot's talk that he did here last year. Yeah. Yeah. I think
1: I would agree with a lot of what he's saying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. And what do you feel is next for you?
1: Oh, good question. So, um, so I've I've tried to um, not plan ahead for too long. Um, not try to. I think. I think. Um, I've realized that, let's say, research topics, for example. Research topics can come and go fairly quickly, despite the sort of long reach in academia. Um, sometimes other groups are working on something similar. Sometimes you feel like, well, maybe my initial excitement wasn't quite matching how important or outstanding that topic really is. So often when, when you first jump at an idea, you, you think, oh, this is great. and But then once you think about it, try to put it to paper, you realize, well, maybe maybe it's not quite as you know, sort of cost benefit of doing it and investing a lot of time. And it. it's not really um, as as important. So I think whenever one says, oh, now I need to write my 10-year you know, plan, then that's just a snapshot of that moment when you think about these 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. why I kind of pulled away from that, because I think, I think it's a continuous process where you continuously update on, on what you want to work on. Mm-hmm. So I sort of think in terms of naturally, because I've supervised you know, student projects, so you have to think about two, three year plans, yeah. but not much beyond it. And yeah. I think, I think, especially when um, I'm sort of rearing towards, you know, climate biodiversity related topics, which are a lot based on sort of data acquisition, um, that works at an incredible pace too. So sometimes, you know, it just could be just a satellite company coming around and just delivering amazing coverage. And I think one has to stay open to that when someone comes around from a different side and just finds a sort of complementary solution to something similar you've had, then the worst I think in Kudu as an academic or a scientist is to say, well, but I, I want sort of become defensive and say like I want to do my thing. Yeah. The best is to collaborate or to realize, well, maybe they've done it better. Yeah. And, then, and then you sort of say, okay, I'll, I'll bury that idea and I'll move on in different mm. directions. The thing is, there's, I, for me, there's never a shortage of possible directions to go into. Mm. So it's sort of a time management topic you want to work on. Yeah. Well, I suppose
0: but, that, that creates openness for pivot points, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> absolutely, yeah. But yeah, I think I think in terms of sort of the next few years, I, I certainly want to focus on, on these topics that um, I've alluded to with, uh, you know, sort of how can I use my expertise in geophysics or seismology to, to sort of look at some of the data acquisition and machine learning of, you know, climate change and biodiversity-related um, problems. Yeah. So I think, essentially, fundamentally, I think these these ecological crises are so interconnected across any scale and any, any sort of information process that um, even the vibrations of the planet are an integral part of this. And I've, I think we've sort of not looked into that carefully enough. So, yeah. so this is sort of why I think the next few years I want to Look mm. at, and um, that relates to you know, wildlife in Kenya as much as soil mm. properties. And, you
0: know. Yeah, so you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, but like, I, I don't want to sort of put myself out there as being an <laughs> no, exception to that. Of course. But it's the, the problem in academia is that we're all in for the same thing. We all want to do science, and yes. and and basically do a PhD in a postdoc, and that's you what you're being told is all you do is science.
0: Mm.
1: What comes like a, like a like a like a tsunami at some point is is all the other stuff that we have to do in this job and that is sometimes incredibly frustrating Mm -hmm. so the the level of management administrative stuff that we have to do is is inevitable I know that we're running an institution like a department but but also we're not trained for it and Mm -hmm. a lot of us are really not skilled Mm -hmm. myself included on many things like you have to manage budgets you have to manage people be a line manager you have to you have to be a pastoral you know sort of Emotional support for students and so on—all of these things are essentially not what we're trained for. And mm. I think I think it's not quite right. <laughs> we have to do all of them, um, not because I don't—I'm lazy or I don't want to do that, but but I think I think a lot of the stuff is is actually really concerning, especially the, the sort of mental support for students. I think that should be taken more seriously from a professional side mm. uh, rather than just dumped on on faculty.
0: Yeah,
1: and and other people. So. Um, yeah it's sort of this job sort of just grows where the administrative teaching I love teaching by the way but mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff around it which is again ad- administrative yeah um, but it, it grows to the point where that can easily fill 50-60 hours a week
0: yeah
1: and then and then you kind of have to do that to make sure the place is running yeah and then research projects you have to do that too because budget and, and overheads of research proposals have to be part of the game yeah um, and also just to keep yourself afloat in the community yeah. But one can pull back from that much more easily than from the administrative side without getting into trouble with colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, for someone like me, is really annoying because I'm really mainly in it for the science. I think this is what drove me in the first place. And, and, and so a lot of it is self-inflicted in the sense that I hear or, or realize that I could work on a new project, maybe saw like, you know, the direction of something impactful maybe, then, then I cannot easily just say no to that because I feel like it doesn't really fit my schedule. Yeah. I fi- I'm too passionate about it then. Yes. So I add it on. It's like it has to fit in, and yeah. and and then I make it work somehow. But but it, it keeps adding on. And, yeah. And that means design sort of becomes almost almost like a hobby that you do on, on evenings and weekends, and that's not how it should be. So mm. I'm quite critical of the way it's going in a way, and it's just a lot of stuff is being added to your plate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, let's put it that way. The biggest task to learn I find is to say no
0: and yes. to 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 just yeah
1: make things really
0: obvious and clear to everyone yeah well i think that's a very relatable point (laughs) to end on thank you very much for making the time for the podcast thank you thank you